1: Chris trigger and is still a favorite for all types of shooters whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns log on to
0: midwayusa.com
1: to the Habitat Podcast. The podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy,
0: and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees.
2: Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host Jared Van Hees, and I am happy you guys are here. We are here to become better habitat managers, and if you've been listening to us for a while, hopefully your habitat game has improved. I know mine has. Guys, we have a great episode for you here today. We have Cody Jarrett from West Virginia, who also has a farm in Illinois, and hunts and films for the Whitetail Freaks television show with the Kiskis. Guys, this is an awesome episode. Um, we actually just wrapped up recording with Cody, and it's very cool to see the differences of habitat management in West Virginia, where he's successful there, uh, out to Illinois. And then, so we talk about different sort of food plot strategies versus cover, size of cover in food plots versus timber. We talk about different elevation, topography, how deer bed in some of those West Virginia hills, very similar to Southern Ohio hills. Talk about the Packer Max Cody's a big fan of that. Uh, just a bunch of great whitetail, you know, farming for wildlife type discussion here and Cody kills some giants um, out there in in Illinois and some very nice bucks in in West Virginia that I'd be very happy to shoot myself. Um, So either way, great guy, great guest. I want to get him on here for a while now, so we have Cody Jarrett from White Y'all Freaks for you here today. I want to thank the listeners. I've been sending out a bunch of decals lately. You guys are leaving us great reviews on, on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. And if you don't mind leaving us a great review, write something uh, with text um, here on, on Apple Podcasts, that'd be awesome. The link is right below in the show notes. Just scroll down while you're listening to this episode. You hit the link to leave us a great review. And that really helps us, guys, get to the top uh, of the habitat and, and wilderness charts here on, on the podcast world. And we just appreciate the great reviews. My wife and I are sending out details to all those. So, if you haven't got your detail yet, find us on Facebook and hit us up. Send us an email at habitatpodcast.com. Uh, the email address info at habitatpodcast.com. We'll get your information that way. Just to make sure that you get the detail you deserve for leaving that great review. So we really do appreciate it. I love you guys for it. It helps us out, and uh, just you know, it's a way that you can give back to, to the podcast. And we, we're thankful for it. I want to also thank uh, all of our land plan clients. We're getting close to wrapping those up for the year. Uh, we have a lot of projects of our own to focus on and, uh, you know, family time in the summer that we like to dedicate, you know, a lot of our time to. So, you know, we got one or two more. We're finishing up on those. If you guys are interested, we're going to start getting people in line for next year uh, or late this year, I should say, December onward, 2021 into 2022. Be sure to hit us up at habitatpodcast.com slash landplans. And, again, I made it easy for you. You can scroll down and grab the link there as well. I want to talk about Killer Food Plot's product, Soil Defender. So, guys, Soil Defender, you've heard us talk about it with Nick on here before. Um, you can go back and find that episode. You look up Nick Percy, uh, Habitat Podcast. It is a liquid foliar fertilizer. It's a 10-5-5. Um, it's a two-part spray. Nick advises that you spray one time on the bare dirt prior to planting and then a second time after the plants are up. Now it stimulates the root growth, um, microorganisms, by helping balance their carbon to nitrogen ratio. It really is a great way for the plants to get the fertilizer and use it most efficiently. And then, you know, it's, it's organic, environmentally safe. So check that out, you know, denser root mass, larger leaves, better better just tonnage in your food plots. And that's Killer Food Plots Soil Defender at KillerFoodPlots.com. Be sure to use the code HP10% sign, HP10% to get your discounts. At KillerFoodPlots.com, is 10% and free shipping with that code. So Habitat Podcast listeners only, HP10% sign, HP10% at KillerFoodPlots.com. I'd also like to thank Packer Max Cultipackers, Hunt Wise, Morris Nursery, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, partners of ours, and uh, listeners, thank you for supporting our partners who, in turn, support the podcast. Let's get right into it with Cody Jarrett from Whitetail Freaks TV. All right, guys, back in the podcast studio, we have uh, co-host Brian Hallboy on the line. Brian, how are you today?
1: Doing well, Jared. Beautiful morning here in southwest Pennsylvania. Doesn't really feel like early summer. It feels like early fall.
2: Yeah, you're not kidding. We had some cold weather blow in uh, two days ago, I think, and it's just, it's been, it's been nice. It's been, you know, a little bit feeling like fall. I like that. And then uh, we have a special guest today. We have Cody Jarrett from West Virginia. How you doing, Cody?
3: Good, Jarrett, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Appreciate you coming on. Absolutely.
2: So, Normally, we we start these off, we'd like to hear about you, tell us about your background. Uh, You know, obviously, you know, you're from West Virginia, but maybe some some regional stuff and kind of how you, you know, got into where you're at now with with the
3: outdoors and what you do for
2: a living, all that good
3: stuff. Sounds good, man. Yeah, I'm from West Virginia, and I actually work over in Ohio, because I live right on the West Virginia-Ohio border, and uh, I work at a power plant. I'm a senior instrument control technician. I've been there since, oh heck, probably 2007. Yeah, September of 2007. And uh, I didn't grow up in a hunting family. I actually grew up about a mile outside of town. And uh, back then, every Sunday, it was TNN Outdoors, Sunday evenings. And uh, I had to watch it. No matter what was going on, I had to watch, you know, David Blanton, Jackie Bushman, all those guys, Sunday evening. So that's kind of how I got my start in the outdoors I guess just watching it and I never started hunting until I was probably 11 10 11 12 maybe somewhere in that ballpark but I think that's kind of what fueled the fire the most because it took me so long to get into it and actually get to start and it just lit that fire and it just burns brighter every year it seems
2: you know it's funny you, you say that I can I can uh Agree with, with what you're saying, because I kind of did the same thing. Before my dad actually took me hunting, um, I was already ate up with it, watching the old videos and the old Buckmasters, I think even there were single digits <laughs> back then, and, and like you said, the public shows on TV on Sundays, and yeah, it just right. it was a way to, get, way to get really addicted and excited about it before even going out and doing it, so... Yeah, that's seems, uh, exactly. seems to be a good way to get into it, I guess, if you want to be obsessed like us.
3: <laughs> exactly. It's kind of a good thing and a bad thing, but I just remember wanting to do it so bad and just no one took me hunting, you know, because my dad didn't hunt. But um, the first time he ever took me hunting, we went squirrel hunting, and I had no idea where we were going. He came into my bedroom, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning and woke me up and asked me if I wanted to go squirrel hunting. I thought, this is a dream, you know, jumped out of bed, and I think that was <laughs> kind of his way of testing the waters just to see how bad I wanted it because we went down to a friend of his farm and because they were big hunters and he kind of just let I mean pow powwow with them but you know every Christmas after that it was always hunting related always got something hunting he never hunted but he supported it in a huge way
2: no that's awesome that's, that's all you need is that that open door if you will so exactly yep so how long have you been hunting for now
3: let hope, oh, probably 20 years or so, give or take.
2: Nice. And are you hunting in just West Virginia, or are, I see you get around a little bit based on your Instagram.
3: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, see, I grew up in West Virginia, hunted in West Virginia. I mean, yeah, I live right on the Ohio border, but I never started hunting in Ohio until, you know, maybe five, eight years ago, but... No, for the most part now, I do have some permission ground in Ohio that I'll hunt on a little bit, but a handful of other guys hunt there too. So it gets pretty tough. So, but I own a farm here in West Virginia and I bought that one. Oh, I was 21 when I bought this farm. <laughs> See, I hunted public ground, got into hunting back when I was, you know, 11 and 12. And, uh, I missed a deer with my bow when I was 12 and <laughs> in my head still to this day, he was huge, you know. But back then, it might not have been, you know, that big, but I still think it was huge. But I missed that deer with a bell, and I came home just bummed out. And gun season was a week away, and uh, I was pumped. I went back out to that same tree, climbed up in the stand, and I could hear deer running around. I thought, man, this is just like the day I missed it. And when the sun came up, all I seen was orange, and uh, I was so bummed out. I came home basically in tears. And I was 12 years old, and I looked at my dad, because he's in the garage working on my mom's car, and I said, I'll never own less than 100 acres. And he said, I'm going to hold you to that. So I started saving that day on, and I bought this farm here in West Virginia when I was 21 years old. And then uh, three years ago, I bought another piece out in south-central Illinois. So pretty much I got a little permission ground in Ohio. My farm here in West Virginia, one in Illinois. I used to have a couple of leases out in Kansas, but with work and everything going on, seventeen hours a drive was getting pretty tough.
1: <laughs> sure. And and Jared and I can totally relate to the pumpkin armies that you see when the sun comes up. Jared's from Michigan. <laughs> I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, so we totally Oh get you guys it. got it bad. <laughs> oh yeah. And that's why we do things like share leases in Ohio and and uh go out west when we can. Jared's hunted Illinois. I've been to Kansas and Yep, we're all in the same boat and know exactly where you're coming from for sure. Absolutely. So walk us through this uh property you have in West Virginia. How did you find it and uh how has it progressed since you've owned it?
3: Well the mailman actually found it. <laughs> Crazy as that sounds. Because <laughs> it's not it's only, you know, five or six miles from where i grew up just further out in the country and i was looking all over for a piece of ground and then the mailman told my mom he asked her if uh i was still looking for a piece of ground she said yeah what do you have in mind and he said well out the road here there's a piece of ground coming for sale and uh it actually took me about eight months to get it bought because it was was it wasn't through a realtor or anything. It was just a very tough process. A realtor is worth their weight in gold if you get a good one. I can tell you that.
1: Sure. Yeah, so what did it look like? Uh, how big was it? And uh, was it just something that the price was right and the opportunity was right? Or were you looking for exactly what it had?
3: Well, at the time i was looking for exactly what it had it's 152 acres and back then i thought timber you wanted as much timber as you could have that's where the deer were buy the timber and uh yeah the price was right because it's just real steep and like i said thick timber and it's got a little bit maybe nine acres open but for the most part it's all timber so back then that's what i thought you had to buy the timber and that's what really turned me on to this piece, because most of it's timber. But as I've got more experience hunting and traveled more and seen different properties and hunting with different people, uh, timber isn't necessarily what you want. You know, you want a little right, more open. Right. If I could, you, if you can get that 60-40, I mean, I'm a 60-40 kind of guy. Maybe my Illinois ground is 70-30. I think if you can get in that 60 to 40 70 30 range i think that's where the money's at
1: now you're saying 60 open 40 timber
3: 60 timber 40 open
1: okay i just wanted to clarify that for our listeners
3: yep i don't want to get too far away from timber because i think there's a lot of weight in that and even now i've changed my thinking again (laughs) you know I always said food was king, and food is king. If you have food late in the year, you're going to win the game, every year, hands down. But I had the food in Illinois, but I didn't have the cover because it had never been cut. It looked like a park. So I would have to wait for the deer to come off the neighbors, and sometimes they wouldn't get there until after dark. So the last couple of years, I've kind of changed gears again and went back into the cover mode.
1: Yeah, not a bad plan at all. So for the West Virginia property, did you do some habitat improvements on that, or did you kind of just manage it for timber?
3: No, I kind of – I work with the USDA office a lot, and we did a lot of invasive species control. You know, your tree of heaven, your autumn olive, grapevines was a big one. So I've kind of turned that around, and that really transformed it. It took away a lot of the – the junk underbrush once I opened up or once I thickened the canopy back up. And uh I've the little bit of fields I had at the time I had pushed those back, made them a little bit bigger. I've pushed in a couple smaller fields to get more food in. So and I've hinge cut um a few ridges this past winter and then several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, I hinge cut the whole South side of this farm, and I've always been wishy-washy when it comes to hinge cutting. I think there's a time and a place for it. Like my Illinois farm, hinge cutting wouldn't have done anything for me, just because it was a big park. You know, I had 30-inch oak trees on it. You know, that just—it's never seen a chainsaw. It was just wide open. So if there was any little trees in there, if I'd have hinged them over, no sunlight would have got in there anyway. You know, so that's where a logger comes in, but on my West Virginia farm, you know, back when my neighbor was alive, he said this was the prettiest hay farm around. And if you didn't see, like, the old fence post down the woods, you would never know because it's all timber. So hinge cutting here is worth its weight because you can drop a 6, 8, 12 inch tree and you're going to open up a lot of canopy. A lot of sunlight will get down in there.
1: That's an outstanding description and Appreciate you going into that because we get a lot of questions on that, and it sounds like you know there's controversy involved with that. But like you said, it's a tool in the toolbox, and that's that's what we push. If you if you got the right time and, and place for it, you do it. If you don't, you don't.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And what I've learned, you know, hunting with the freaks since 2014, a lot of them guys are up there in Iowa. No two farm, farms are the same. You know, even the two I own, I'll tackle them completely different. But I mean don't get me wrong, a deer's a deer, you know, they're going to take the path of least resistance. They're going to go to food or cover water. You know, so you have the same goal, but a lot of times you have completely different tactics.
1: Sure. Yeah, and I want to get into that for sure, how how it differs between the two properties. So tell us a little bit Absolutely. about the the Illinois property and how you came about getting interested in getting a place out there and, and how you found that place.
3: Okay. Well, I started hunting the Midwest, oh, back in 2012, and fell in love with it. You know, all my friends around here, they want to go to the mountains for vacation stuff. I want to go to the Midwest. I love it out there. I love the cornfields because it's different from West Virginia and Ohio. But uh, it's uh, – How I came about it was, when I started hunting in Kansas, I actually wanted to buy some ground out there. But then, as I got older and matured, them 17-hour drives weren't realistic. I couldn't take care of it the way I wanted to. I couldn't keep my thumb on it the way I wanted to. So I had a lease out there, but I wanted something a lot closer to home with the same quality of deer. So I started looking in Illinois, and... It was hard to find something good in Illinois that was priced right because ground is so expensive. So I started looking at neighbors. Like I wanted the biggest and baddest neighbors I could find, you know, the biggest farms that maybe not for hunters, but just big farmers. And that once I started looking into the neighbors, I started looking at distance. Then I started looking for a good, trustful uh, realtor. That was a big hunter that could kind of steer me in the right direction. And once I found the guy I started using, I told him when I was after, and then he told me the size of the piece of property I should get, or if it was good or bad, or if he came across one. He may not even tell me because he knew it wasn't something I would look for. But uh, as far as how I wanted it where I wanted it, it was all, it boiled down to the quality of deer and the distance from home. So I didn't want to lose that Kansas quality of deer, but I also didn't want to drive, <laughs> you know, fifteen, sixteen hours still. Sure.
1: So, what part of the Illinois are you talking about? That uh, you don't have to give us the exact area, but just just for our listeners, uh, what what kind of area of Illinois has similar deer that you're looking for compared to Kansas?
3: I I am actually in East Central. You know, southeast, central, east, central, and that ballpark. And, uh, talk to a lot of guys and I have a lot of friends over in like the Brown County, Pike County, Schuyler County area. And don't get me wrong, that, that is killer hunting on that side, but that south, east, east, central area, it is so good too, man. I mean, you're not going to find huge pieces. You know, several hundred acres for sale anymore. But you can, you can squeeze into like an 80 or something and, and really get into slammer deer hunting.
1: That's outstanding. <clears throat> so you mentioned before that deer are deer and there are some challenges obviously between West Virginia and Illinois. Maybe walk us through, you mentioned about different approaches for hunting each state.
3: Okay. Uh, I think the biggest thing is I hate the wind. <laughs> I mean, you guys can agree with me especially Brian being where we're from over here, it's pretty steep. It's pretty rugged. So wind will kill us 95% of the time hunting around here. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and hunting in the Midwest, you can really work around it. I mean, you can move 10 or 15 yards and be able to get out of the wind. you know, if you're hunting an east-west ridge or, or a field that lays east-west, you can actually move just a little bit south or north with that east-west ridge and be able to hunt it, where here, I mean, you almost got to move farms <laughs> if you want to get away from, like, a south wind <laughs> or a north wind, you know? It's terrible. Yeah. But uh, that's what I like about the Midwest and being out in Illinois is a little bit goes a long way as far as as the wind goes, where around here, like I said, it's, it's awful. You almost got to move farms, move clearly the opposite side of the farm. But as far as, like, as food goes, like clover out in Illinois or a, or a cereal grain is just absolutely lights out out there. We're here in West Virginia. I'm not going to go out of my way to plant it or take care of it or fertilize it just because, you know, my neighbor's got 80 acres of pasture over there, you know, loaded with clover. So I'm not going to be able to congregate deer to an acre or two when he's got 80 of it over there. He bales every year, you know. So I put more of like a – uh almost like an ice cream treat. I'll do a lot of turnips, brassicas here in West Virginia. And if I can squeeze in some corn, and that is, <laughs> I'm squeezing in corn. If I can get a couple acres here, I'm tickled pink about it. But, you know, I'll do my brassicas or my corn fields here where out in Illinois, I'll stick obviously with the grains because it's everywhere. But I'll do cereal grains or a clover because it is, it's unreal how good clover is out in the midwest
1: that's interesting because uh we push a lot of clover and everybody plants it because it's so easy but uh right. i don't think we i don't think we've ever heard that take on it and that's definitely something to think Uh-oh. about for sure
0: <laughs> no well, that's, that's not
3: good
1: no yeah. no it's actually I mean, great that's that's what we're here for to to pick up different things in yeah. different regions and see what's working well brian i think yeah, i think what you're what
2: you're Kind of seeing is kind of what we talk about too, is being that outlier property. You know, being the being the best of the best. Don't do everything your your neighbors do, and do what they're doing and more. So if you can if you can diversify a little bit and and plant that ice cream, you know that's, that's right. I think I think that's the idea, and I think uh, I love it. I love hearing things like, "There's hundred acres of clover next door, so I don't plant it." Like that makes sense. Sure.
3: Right. Give them something that they want but they don't have readily, you know?
1: Right. Absolutely. So have you seen the age class and the quality of bucks getting better in West Virginia since you've owned that property? Because up here in PA, I I think it's a combination of things. We do have some antler point restrictions that have been around for quite a while now. And I think with the hunter numbers dropping, these deer are just being able to get out there and get a little bit older. Have you seen that going on in West Virginia?
3: Yes, and uh and I don't necessarily think it's just because of, you know, how I've been kind of tackling this area. I honestly feel like there's less hunters around and then, you know, some properties around me have switched hands with some like-minded people. And unless you have just a boatload of property, like several thousand, like you can't control your own destiny. So you really got to get into a good co-op. But uh, since I bought this in 09, yeah, yeah, there's been a a really good jump. Like I should have a four- and a five-year-old deer on this farm this year. And, you know, 10 years ago, I never would have dreamed of having a five-year-old deer. You know, it's just unheard of. Just the gun hunters would, you just lose everything. Or, you know, they would disperse late in the year and I've never seen them again, never know if they got killed or they just left and found something better. So over the course of the time I've owned this, yes, it's gotten a lot better. It's gotten – I see a lot more bucks now, but, you know, I'm putting a lot more food, and I murdered the does a few years ago just because I was just <laughs> overrun with them. <laughs> and I remember yeah. back when I was just starting to get into management and I just bought this piece of ground, I remember Don Kiskey saying, um, you've got to start from the top. And what he meant by that is you've got to keep the whole numbers in check, not just your buck numbers. I mean, you've got to keep your does in check because a doe is a mouth feeding too. And if you're feeding a bunch of does and the bucks are coming out an hour after the does are out, there's going to be a lot less food for them. So you got to look at it as a whole picture. A mouth is a yeah. mouth, you know, at the end of the day. Absolutely. So what
1: about similarities, getting back to deer or deer? What do you notice that there are kind of similar between West Virginia and Illinois?
3: Well, like I said, like a deer is a deer still at the end of the day. We may approach things differently as as what we plant, but, I mean, you're going to see deer moving late October is still the best time here and there, in my opinion. I love that last week of October. As far as getting a big deer, I mean, you're still going to see them go to food, um, cover, king in both states. I'm a truly, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, you have got to have the food, water, and cover. You got to have the trifecta to really be able to manage ground. For the same, but uh, as far as, as the same, I mean, you're still going to see deer act like deer in both states. I mean, you don't want to overthink it. Because if you have the food, you're going to have the deer. If you have the cover, you're going to have the deer. If you have water, you're going to have the deer. So you just don't want to overthink it. You just got to figure out what they like. And you're not going to – I don't think you're going to plant something that they don't like. You know, yeah. deer are they're foragers. I mean, heck, 80% of their diet is stuff we don't plant. You know, they'll nibble through the woods for two or three hours before they get to something you planted. So – I think at the end of the day, just treat a deer as it is, just like a deer, no matter where you're at.
2: Now, Cody, how far is your Illinois farm from your from where you live? Six hours, right on the button. Okay, yeah, that's not bad. That's manageable. Um
3: Heck no. It's great are you calling... after driving sixteen.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah, I know, I hear you there. It's it's like um <laughs> Are you hauling your tractor and everything out there with you? Do you have a different tractor out there when you're doing your your habitat work?
3: Nope, I'll pull it out there with me, and that's what's nice is I only have to do it a couple times a year.
2: Yeah. So I kind of want to talk about how you approached setting up um, the Illinois property, knowing what you've already known from the you know, past how many years on the on the Virginia property? Sounds like you're you've done a lot on, on the VA property or West Virginia. I'm sorry, and then you uh, you understand that you know cover and, and hinge cutting and just getting that that security cover is, is huge down there. What are you What are you doing in in Illinois for cover? Did you end up having those big thirty inch oaks logged out, or I guess walk us through your steps on the Illinois property for the habitat plan?
3: Okay, well when I first bought it. I didn't do anything. I kinda instead of having, you know, the ag fields harvested, I, I left my share because it was in a two thirds, one third share, and I kinda hunted it just how the land laid. Because you guys know as you know, we hunt some pretty rough and rugged, steep country. You what kinda let that, the toe tell you. Real what quick,
2: I'm. what does that two third, one third share mean?
3: Um the farmer doesn't pay me like a cash rent price to to farm it? He'll keep two-thirds, and I get a third of the money after he sells the grain.
2: Got it. Okay, so you just left your third standing.
3: I just left my third standing,
2: yep. Got it. Okay, sorry. Continue.
3: But anyway, so when I bought that farm, I, uh, I just kind of walked it out and hunted how I thought it should be hunted, you know, how the land rolled, if the thermal winds were going to be – in play because it is some bottom ground. So it kind of rolls down into the, into the big Creek system. It flows through everything there. So I, I really had to think about thermals, which, you know, we're used to around here, you know, everything's wind related, but then, um, so I didn't do anything that first year, just kind of sat back and watched it and I hunted it and just tried to figure out the best route to take. Well, then this past year, I went in there and I hinge cut a ridge. It's that, not really a ridge, it's kind of the edge. Because when I would walk through my bottom field, and it's almost 11 acres, when I would walk through that bottom field to check cameras, I would bump deer up in my timber. And it would drive me nuts because I just want to check a camera. And I'm in a wide open through my timber, and I hated it. So I went in there and I kind of chopped those trees down just to try to block the field so I could get in and out without blowing deer out I mean because if you think about it 70 yards by 70 yards is an acre and I was giving up way more than that when I was walking down so I tried to buffer that just a little bit well then this past year since happened it helped but I knew I needed to have it cut so we just finished up a couple months ago we cut it we cut it down to about 18 inches and uh and we took all the ash trees out because you know the ash trees are dying around here and out yep. there too we took most of those out and then everything down to down to 18 and i'm telling you guys right now it looks completely different i the when i first walked in because he cut for four or five days before i was able to get out there and and kind of take a peek at things i just wanted to see it done i wanted to get some footage and fly my drone and stuff but when I walked in, my stomach about turned upside down because <laughs> you walk in because <laughs> it uh, it's crazy when you first see it because, I mean, if you're having a 30-inch red oak, I mean, think of how big the top is. I mean, and they weren't short. Sure. Yeah, the top, obviously, it's not this big, but in my mind, it was like a quarter acre coming down of sunlight's going to be opened up now, you know. So you walk in there, when I was walking down the field edge, I'm thinking, well, it doesn't even look like he was in here much. And I started looking at the trees, and it just looked like a an opening in the middle of my timber. So I dove in there. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is bad. But, you know, that was back in February March when there was no leaves on. So if you were to go out there now and look, it's it looks so good, man. I walked in there last time I was out there just to see how green it was getting and how thick it was getting. And there was a doe walking around feeding up there and I walked probably 30 yards in the woods and she had no idea I was there. I was there, So that was my goal. Yeah. I didn't want to blow deer checking cameras and if I can walk into the woods without blowing deer, I think it was the right call.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we we talked about it so many times and I'm sure you've heard so many times. It's definitely, definitely the right call. And it's funny you had that, that feeling of your stomach turning upside down. I think that's what, Happens to everybody, and we've also talked about that. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, you got to get past that that short-term aesthetic hit, if you will. Oh, and yeah. Think big picture, like you mentioned earlier, right? Um, absolutely. And it sounds like you're already on your way to some great some great understory and, and browse. Uh, how how big is your timber that you had logged off? I know it sounds like a 70-30 Illinois farm, but how big is the timber?
3: Yep. Well, I only cut the north. The north side, because the rest is just kind of draws and little feeder creeks and stuff. Okay. So I left them go, but that was a 30-acre block I had cut this year. And there's wow. a food plot in the far north of it, um, so you can probably take an acre out of that and maybe a little bit around it. So I'd say out of that 30 acres up there, I bet you 26, 27 of it got cut.
2: Nice. Nice. And is yeah, that, uh, that going to be a designated bedding area now, or what's your thoughts with – with how your farm's laid out to to I know it, it seems yeah you can hunt to the north side of it too, that's great,
3: yeah, yep, I can hunt the north side. I'm actually going to put in some cereal grains up in that field, and it's about an acre, so yeah i I would love to get in there because growing up in West Virginia, like I'm a timber guy, love the yep. timber, love getting in the timber, but hunting the midwest, I feel like you can do more damage diving into the timber. So, and as, being only 30 acres, and I'm going to have close to 20 acres of food this year on that farm, I don't know how much I'll get into that side of the farm and that timber, but on the east side of my farm, there's a couple draws that lead off my neighbors, and uh, it's killer in there, especially in the rut, because everything just kind of pinches right down into the into where my timber starts and then it dives into my bottom field and stuff. So I don't know if I'll hunt too much into that 30-acre block of timber. I'm probably just going to leave it as bedding as best I can.
2: No, that makes sense. And um, I think I'd agree with you. I've hunted Illinois a couple times, and the idea from those boys down there who, who live there and know it better than I do is to is to stay out of the timber, give that to the deer, and, right. and hunt them on the edges. and in Michigan, if we did that, we'd, we'd never kill any good bucks, at least not very often. Right. <laughs> we got to you know, get way back in there on their beds or near the cover or whatever. But down there, I've, I've seen that work, and I think, uh, to your point, it's going to be an awesome an awesome bedding area. Now, did you have to do any invasive species management? I know um, if you sometimes cut timber and open up that canopy, all you're doing is releasing the invasives. So what sort of images know. did you have going on there? Because I know you, you already did that in Virginia, West Virginia.
3: Well, as far as Illinois, it was such a park-looking timber, so I'm kind of not sure what's going to happen yet. I'm sure the multi-floor is going to come. It comes everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was actually talking to my buddy Tim. He does a lot of filming with me, and I told him, about this time next year, we're going to have to walk around with backpack sprayers and start knocking some of that back if it gets as bad as it probably will. Right. But as far as like an autumn olive or, or another, you know, other invasives, I'm not real sure yet what I'm going to get into. I know there's a lot of grapevines out there, and those are easy enough. If you catch them young enough, you don't have to take a chainsaw with you. You know, you just throw a machete on your side when you're out shed hunting or something and just kind of whack them as you go through. And uh, But as far as is like a brush invasive, I'm not sure yet, man. I'm almost scared to think what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it sounds like you're already gearing up to to battle it if you need to or, or probably when you need to. So that's that's awesome. It sounds like you're you're prepared. And, um, yeah, shoot, shot hunting with a machete, that actually sounds kind of fun. <laughs> that's
3: right, man. You can never be too prepared. And wow. that's the thing with habitat management, man, it's just there's never a – a one and done tactic, I don't think. You know, like hinge cutting, you got to go back in in a few years and cut all the shoots out of the trees, you know, or you're back to where you started from. Timbering, you're going to release a lot of invasives because you're going to open up. It's you're going to make it look like a field to the sun, you know. Just there's no habitat one and done, I don't think.
2: Nope, nope. I bet my wife wishes there was, but there definitely is not. <laughs> <laughs> Now if you're you're talking um back to kind of how you set up the habitat plan on your properties um, we all kind of know the food to or bed to food food to bed type thing um, are there mm-hmm. what are some tips and tricks that you found on either property that maybe you've you know finessed a setup to where you know, you, you got some brassicas next to some corn, and you know, then you knock some corn down or something, which I think I saw on your Instagram. Like, tell me about a couple, one or two, real finesse type situations where you're really in the detail and have it dialed into how you want it to to work out.
3: Well, I think my biggest tip, as far as like habitat or management, would be is let the deer do what the deer do. Don't I've never had much luck forcing a deer somewhere, you know, like if they're bedding on the east side of my farm or the south side of my farm, that's where I'm going to practice, do my practice, whether change cutting or timbering, but and always have a backup plan for a backup plan for a backup plan (laughs) because mother nature ultimately controls everything. But as far as like the most finesse work is I saw that deer, year before last chuck brown it actually aired yesterday um he was staying on the south southeast side of this farm a lot and i actually have another deer i call alfalfa i'm hoping he comes back this year because he was like a low 140s last year so i really want to break that 150 here in West virginia but no chuck brown kind of stayed on the south side and i have a field down there and it was one of the first food plots ever put in i call it the small food plot because it's less than a half an acre it's it's pretty small but uh i went down in there and i pushed it all off made it just a little bit bigger and i planted a uh a brassica well it's a turnip and clover blend just to keep him as close to that back cornfield as i could i didn't want him venturing off to a feeder somewhere or you know and losing him well then once my corn came up back there we got really bad rain and the whole bottom side of it flooded out. So I went back in there in the first part of August, and I mowed all that crappy corn down, tilled it all under, and put brassicas in. And it turned out it was the sweetest-looking field I've ever planted. I mean, I couldn't have drew it up on a piece of paper any better than how it turned out. And uh I actually killed him, like, the second week, the end of the second week of season that year. I mean, everything, as bad as it was looking in the summer – when it all finished and deer season started, it was awesome. Everything, it couldn't have worked out any better for me.
2: Good for you. No, I know uh, that's that's always a great idea to have a, a backup plan in case the spring or summer plots failed. You know, fall planting is is definitely a, a good idea, or probably my favorite, to be honest with you. I don't always plant spring yes. uh, for that reason yeah. alone and, and then time as well. But what? how are you planting your corn um, normally when – how often does it fail versus how often does it look great?
3: Well, well, Illinois is a different story because it's, you know, the Midwest and it's, yeah. it's built for corn. Well, here in West Virginia, like last year was a disaster year. Uh, we had them cold, late rains and it just never stopped raining. And once it stopped raining, it never started again. So last year was just an epic failure. Well, then this year, we're just now starting to get rain. It's been bone dry here where I'm at and we finally got a little bit of rain a couple of days ago, but this year it's looking it's looking incredible. But that backfield it's kinda of shaped funky. Um it kinda of slopes towards one of the one side of the field and the other side of the field they kinda of slope toward each other, so it creates this little tiny like a little wet spot if we get a bunch of rain. And uh even the the side close to where I, how I access it, the north side, I feel it was always wet, and I fixed that problem this year, and I figured it out because from my house clear down to that field slopes, and I have a, an old road I used to get down there with the tractors and the buggies. Well, all that rain was going all the way down that road and into that field, and it was just saturating it. So mm-hmm. this past spring, I went down there with just a shovel, and right before the field, I just dug this wee little ditch off to the left and down over the hill, and it changed that field drastically. Awesome. But uh, that field fails. I've tried to put corn in that field 10 years in a row, and I've only got it to grow twice, this really? year being one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's bad back there, very bad, because it was always wet. It'd stay way too wet. But I think a lot of that could have been the water running off the hillsides, you know, down into there from, like, you know, my house area. Yeah. And I think I fixed that problem with that little ditch. I mean, just little things go a long way, it seems.
2: Well, good for you for busting out the hand tools. That's that's awesome. That's where we <laughs> Hey, I'm started, not scared, right? man. Yeah. Hey, I'm no. still
3: there. <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: yeah, me, me too, for the most part. <laughs> are you um, are you drilling this or planting this corn? Or are you um, broadcasting and disking in? How are you planting it?
3: Nope. I have uh, an old uh, John Deere 7000 planter I still use. Nice. And, uh, and you can get those pretty cheap, and you can rebuild them pretty cheap, you know. It doesn't take much to get them rebuilt. A little bit of time, and they're, they're the old Chevy S10s of the planters, you know. They're going to run forever, last forever, <laughs> way 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 ahead of their times when they came out.
2: Is that a two-row
3: or four-row? Or This one here is a two-row at my, my West Virginia farm, yep. I'm actually yeah. thinking about getting rid of it and getting a four-row. And then uh, a buddy of mine just bought a planter, so I'm thinking about getting rid of this one, getting a four-row and keeping it out in Illinois for everything out there. You know, that's something I've never tried planting
2: was, was corn. Um, I broadcasted beans with some other mixes here and there, but never even tried that full, full bore. We got some real sandy soil, and, and I just uh, I think they'll get hammered way too fast, but I think I'm going to try it either way. I think having some – if you if you got some corn um, – Just the structure and the cover that comes with it is is worth doing. Is that why you plant it, or why do you plant corn 10 years in a row?
3: Well, corn, because nobody around here has it. And like you said, it doubles as cover as well. And corn is king, man. Like The deer love it. Corn is king. Now, you're not going to have, like, the health benefits like a, a bean will as far as protein levels and stuff, but my farm out in illinois uh this would be the third planting season i own it and it was bean on bean and this year i took a lot of it out of production and put corn in because i wanted more cover like i have ungodly amounts of food out there now i just wanted more cover so you know the past two years i've spent all my time and energy on cover out there and i'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen um with corn in that field, because like you said, you know, the structure is, uh, is huge for deer. I mean, that field out there, is, it was like, it's like 10.59 acres. And I remember the first year I was hunting, I'd sit in that field, and deer would come out on the west side, and deer would come out on the east side, and they would just stand and blow at each other. <laughs> Clear across that field, I'm thinking, what the hell? Like, what the heck is going on? Like, Gotta be a better come on, way. you guys know they're, <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to get that field broke up and I actually thought about, you know, maybe even putting beans and corn in that field, just separating it some. But you no, know, you said, uh, broadcasting beans. I've done that here and it's incredible how well broadcasting beans work, man. My buddy in Ohio, he just did that this year and his bean stand, it looks so good. He just sent me pictures of it yesterday and I don't know if you could have drilled it any better than how they're coming up. But we've had the good rains. It was bone dry when we got all of our planting in here. I mean, dry enough to when we were tilling, you can't look behind you because there's just so much dust. And we planted right into that. And that seems, from what I've learned here in West Virginia, if you can plant in conditions like that and get down close to the moisture but have that top layer just super dusty and super, you know, crumbled, your best hands come in those conditions if you get them timely rains after, obviously. Sure, sure. And then
2: I guess uh oh man, I had one more question for you. I thought I forgot what it was gonna be. Oh, um
3: <laughs> Well heck, that's all right.
2: Yeah. Oh man, I lost it. So Ryan, <laughs> go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I see that you're uh doing a lot of supplemental feeding also on your properties. Are you are you doing that in West Virginia and Illinois?
3: No, unfortunately. You can't do any type of supplemental feeding out in Illinois. Um, That's banned. No mineral, no no feed, nothing like that. But West Virginia, I mean, heck, we could shoot a deer with its head in a bait pile if you wanted. But I'll run, as soon as the seasons are over, I'll put feeders out. And now I'll take them down. You know, as soon as everything starts growing, you know, all your fields are up and green, and you'll see them start slowing down from hitting the feeders. But I'll take them down probably mid July, but I wish Illinois would do it. I think Iowa has the best as far as you know regulations. You know, you're allowed to run mineral and you're allowed to run feeders, but you can't do it during season. And I think that's just the best thing. I know CWD is a big, a big scare, and a, a big topic, you know. And sure. but if you go to any store, if you go to any store in a, a state that forbids it, all the you know, where your feed is, them shelves are empty. So people still do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, for
1: sure. <laughs> you,
3: you know what I mean? So yep. my theory on that is is if one person has a mineral site or a, a feeder going in a place that you're not allowed, every deer in a county is going to go to that spot. So it's yeah. going to make it worse. So if you would legalize it, you know, maybe like Iowa.
1: That's a good point. And,
3: you know, you would spread it, you know. So if you have an 80-acre farm, those deer, you might have a dozen deer using it. But if you have if you're the only game in town, you may have two hundred deer using it, so I think Iowa's got to figure it out up there <laughs> obviously, look at the deer they shoot every year, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Pennsylvania's similar. We can have it out up to thirty days before the season, but the tricky part is when you get into the minerals because i've I've had some friends that I know that have taken out the minerals and the they've asked the uh game wardens and the game warden says well you know if that's still in the soil after the 30 days you could still be sighted and that's kind of a a sticky subject but at least we could still do it a little bit here
3: yeah that is tough and uh, i mean you guys know like i run mineral here in west virginia and uh the deer stop using it when the antlers get hard the deer stop using mineral like you can keep a camera on that mineral station all fall and you may never get a picture of a deer using it yep but then you know late winter they'll start using it again so i mean yeah it's in the dirt but i mean a deer is not going to go to it in the fall it seems like at least around here i mean every place is different obviously
1: right right so I saw that you had put out some alfalfa bales one time. What what was the deer's reaction to that, and uh, what kind of impact do you think it had on them for that winter?
3: I had a lot of people tell me... <laughs> oh, man, I had a lot of people tell me I was crazy for that, but a, a buddy of mine that I work with uh, they have got some livestock, and he gave me a bale to try. And I, I knew it was going to work because I've read articles about it. You know, people in the Midwest have done it, and... Uh, His grandfather told him to tell me I was crazy. So I made sure I had a camera over this. And uh, believe it or not, that worked incredible. Like, I had more deer go to that than the feeder I had. I just think it goes back to that, you know, 80% of a deer's diet is just forage, you know, just walk around nibbling everything. So I feel like that's kind of instilled in them to eat something like that, you know, a silage, and you know, something cut versus straight corn or a little bit of protein mixed in with corn out of a feeder. So I sure. think for as cheap as they are, I mean, throw one out, it lasts a, a pretty good while. Heck, they were bedding in it even, just kind of sitting there eating. <laughs> it was great, man.
1: <laughs> Make it tough to get in there on them.
3: Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, – I had a windstorm blowback – or come through and blow down a lot of trees on that back point, and uh I was kind of, the deer I wanted, that deer I, I was telling you guys about, that alfalfa deer that I kind of, everything that I did on this farm, everything I did last winter with the alfalfa bales, obviously, because the deer's alfalfa, but uh in the feeders was because of this deer, and I got his pictures with one side down, and we got a bunch of snow, and then the other side, I got a picture with his other side down, so I'm like, Dude, if this is the time to find an antler, now, it's now. Well, We just got snow. I still haven't found that deer's antler, but I'm thinking just south of that field, all this, a big storm comes and blue, all these cherry trees down, because you know how they don't really tap root out. They're just big root balls. So bad winds will pick them up and flop them over pretty easy. But it gets so steep back there, and – I have a feeling it's down on one of those little kind of rock ledges or something. And the reason I say that is because when I was doing the grapevine removal with the USDA office here, I had to do that because, it, or I had to do that on that back spot because a lot of red oaks back there, a lot of big, big hardwood timber. And that's kind of the, the goal of grapevines is to improve your timber. Well, it's kind of, it's so steep back there. I had to walk on my right leg and walk on my left knee on this hillside and I got to this little tiny little jet. (laughs) Yeah. it's. I told the forester, I said, dude, this is it. Like (laughs) I'm not doing this again. This is awful. But, uh, I, I found this little tiny little jet out. I mean, it's not, it's no bigger than like a dog bed. It was teeny tiny. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I'm kind of cutting my way over there. And as soon as I get on that little ledge, there's a five coin side laying right on it. And I thought they're half goat deer. I mean, they're goat yeah, deer around yeah. here. This is what they like. So I'm kind of thinking he's down on one of those ledges, and uh, I just never went down in there because it's, it's super steep, and I don't want to blow deer anymore more right. than I don't have right. to anymore, you know. Yeah,
1: that's incredible. So what treatment were you using for those vines?
3: Well, that's the cool thing about a vine is you can do it with zero chemical. As long as you cut them and they swing away because they'll fuse back together because I'm sure you guys know if you cut a grapevine, like right now especially, the water is going to pour out of it. So as long as it kind of swings away from the bottom half that you cut and it doesn't fuse back together, it'll die. It'll die pretty quick. Like if you go kill or cut a a vine right now when it's super green, you come back in a day or two and uh, you're going to see that top of that tree brown where all those – leaves are on that grapevine but back when i was doing the tree of heaven removal um i used the hack and squirt method and i right. just used Tordon on rtu with that you know because it's died so you kind of just walk around the hatchet and whack them trees
1: and excellent
3: they pretty much die as you're going <laughs> by the time yeah. i was done the front trees i did because that, at that time i've only done it twice and i've got another contract this year but the big one i had the big contract I had with him, it was a five-acre block. And uh, by the time I was done, the first few trees were already starting to wilt hmm. with that toward on. That's some wicked stuff, man.
1: That's great. So when you are running the feeders, what are you running in them, just straight corn, or are you mixing something in with them?
3: No, I mix. I very rarely run straight corn. And I will don't get me wrong. I mean, not right now. I mean, heck, corn's like I was at Tractor Supply last night, and corn's like eleven fifty a bag. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's crazy, crazy. Thing, really. <laughs> wow. Yep. Yeah, it's insane. But uh, no, um, I use a lot of. Uh, we work pretty close with Antler King, so I use a lot of the rack maker stuff. But uh, if I if I have straight corn here, I'll run down to the uh, co-op and I will get. A protein feed for cattle and mix it. Yeah. Now yeah, they, like they don't necessarily food. right. And Have you ever noticed like they'll pick all the corn out and then go back in and pick the protein pellets out? It's like they don't like them very much, but they'll eat them if they need to. Sure. That's what yeah. I always noticed. Like you'll go down there and like the front of the shoots of the feeder is going to be nothing but the protein pellets and all the corns gonna be picked out, but they will eat it though.
1: Yeah, they do.
2: Now, Cody, I had a I remembered my my question from way back when. How much of your properties are you setting up into food? Give a percentage that you like to go by. It sounds like you you set up quite a bit in food plots. Um, mm-hmm. Give me a give me a rough idea for each farm.
3: Well, my West Virginia farm, like I said, it's it's pretty steep and there's not much open. But if if it is open, it, it does have food in it. Um, there's an old pipeline that comes through my farm uh i think they put it back in the 50s and so i try to put some of that into food obviously it gets too steep so it gets growed up pretty thick with malta florida but now uh illinois i took most of it out of production this year because you know in the past couple of years i'd leave six eight acres you know my share and i'd be i'd still be wiped out so i'm i'm getting to the point now where Even from the first year to last year, the deer I would see late December, early January doubled. I remember sitting out there the first year I owned it, and I'd see 30 deer a night. I'm thinking, this is unbelievable because I'm from West Virginia. If I see four a night, I'm doing something. (laughs) You know, So I'm out there seeing 30. I'm thinking, this is insane. Well, then last year, I squeezed a little bit more food in, and last year, late December, early January, I'm seeing 60-some. So you can never leave too much because you will grow into it. So out there, I'm probably 18 acres in food this year. Is what I'm gonna kind of have, where and versus my how, how home farm, is that farm? I, uh 60 some, okay, like gotcha. 67. Yep. But you know my home farm, it's mostly timber. I may have let's see here one two, like six. <laughs> you know, it's not not much at all, and that's. That that makes life hard because if you don't get if you don't kill something, it's hard to tell where they're gonna go.
2: Sure, I think that's kind of no. I appreciate you going into that. Looks like your your West Virginia farm is about four percent and Illinois is up way in like twenty six twenty seven percent food. So, yeah, big difference. Yep. But it's just because you're limited on the West Virginia farm. And I think uh, Brian on our. Ohio Lease down there, I mean, you're putting in a bunch of uh, food as well because it's kind of a limiting factor, is it not?
1: Yeah, and just like uh, Cody said, those gas lines and those power lines, we take advantage of that open space too. Yep. No, yeah. that makes
3: sense those to are me. sweet. I like those narrow fields like that because you're going to catch deer in it no matter what time of the day it is because, you know, like that old, that old war line they call it here, it, uh, it may be 30 yards wide. So, you know, two or three bounds for a deer and they're back into the, in the thick of it. So, uh, them narrow, long fields, man, they could be killer. If you can get stuff to grow, if you can get them, like here, that field lays east and west, so it has sun all the time. So I don't have to worry about it, you know, getting shaded out. It'll grow about anything.
2: Yeah, that's awesome, and and Brian is uh, our food plot master, so we know he can get stuff to grow in about anywhere, (laughs) including the Southern Ohio uh, uh, gas lines there. I've seen it happen.
3: What do you guys like over there? Oh,
2: what do we like to to plant? Go ahead, Brian.
3: Yes.
1: Yeah, so um, I've been up in northeast Ohio. I own 40 up there, and then I had a lease in Carroll County. So this is kind of our first year of being further south towards Zanesville. And uh, Uh we kind of just planted some blends this summer just to build the soil. So it's kind of going to be the learning process. But we've got some uh, beans, sunflowers, uh, peas. We put a little spring oats in there, some clover, some chicory. And then, uh, I really like roundup ready alfalfa just because it's so easy to plant and take care of. So we got a couple yeah. squares of that down there too. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah.
3: You can't beat alfalfa. And you can't beat the time when alfalfa is growing and you can just see it start waving in the, uh, in the wind. Because once you yeah. just start seeing it waving in the wind, that's when you know, like, the deer are going to be on it then. Oh, yeah. Alfalfa well, why, why is good stuff because it's young palatable you know if it gets too stemmy the deer really turn off on it but if you can keep it mowed and cleaned up and keep it growing young and just starting to wave it's so good man and i was exposed to that out in nebraska years and years ago uh right before i got out there the farmer had mowed it and bailed it and it looked terrible when i went out there i'm like man this is it Well, then, as the (laughs) weeks went on, it just started to wave. And I'm thinking, man, it looks sweet in the mornings. You had dewy, and you could just see it kind of flickering. But after that, man, every deer in the section was there. I thought, this is it. If you have a little bit of open ground, squeeze some alfalfa on it, loaded with protein.
2: Yeah, it's always a big attraction here in Michigan in uh, late summer, early fall, for (laughs) sure. You always see them out in those alfalfa fields.
3: Yeah, it's it's incredible. But like you said, the limiting factor, you know, if you get a piece of ground, whether it be permission or a lease or you buy it, I mean, that's the very first thing you need to do is figure out the limiting factor on it. Like my Illinois farm, before me, the farmer would come in, he would plant it, harvest it, disk it all under. So the deer never knew, you know, and I was kind of bummed the first year I had it because late season, I'm... Seeing deer, but not like nothing good, nothing mature. And I got to thinking about that. I'm thinking, you know, for the lot, for, you know, different generations of deer out here, they've never known to come here for food. So now I still think I'm in the building stage. You know, late season comes, light bulbs are going to go off. They're going to say, we got to go to the Jerry farm. (laughs) He's got the food right now. So I think that's the very first thing you need to do is figure out that limiting factor, whether it be food, whether it be cover, water, and water. I think water is the most, you know, untalked about thing as far as managing whitetails. And I learned that out in Kansas, the very first thing the deer would do when they would wake up is go to a a creek or a river and get something to drink. And since then, I've came home and planted or planted, dug little water holes on my West Virginia farm, and it's amazing. If you want pictures in summer, early fall, put them on a water hole around here. And I wish I'd have learned that 10 years ago.
2: <laughs> yeah, I could say that about a lot of things. Um, I, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I think your, uh, your water hole uh, idea, yeah, we, we're definitely a big proponent in, in putting water near sand locations. You know, we're not the ones uh, who uh, started doing that, but we do the heck out of it. And who? Uh, what type of uh, water holes are you putting in? Are you digging them and putting a liner in them? Or are you using big tubs? What are your thoughts there?
3: Nope. Well, the one I dug two years ago on the left side of my farm, I dug it clear down until I hit clay dirt. And, you know, because that's, you know, that's a natural liner, you know. So I dug mm-hmm. it down, and it was a nightmare. I had my little tractor down there mm-hmm. <clears throat> trying to dig. I would get a load of mud out. But I couldn't back out because my front tires were buried. So I had to dump that dirt out, dump the mud out, push myself out of the bucket, and then try to do it again. So it was a disaster doing it. I dug as much as I could with that tractor and kind of got got it how I wanted it. But then a lot of it I went in there with rubber boots on and dug it with a shovel. Um, so as far as liners or tubs, um uh, I've tried the liner thing. I took an old – I found it here on this farm. It was one of them old water tanks some white ones, you know, and I cut the top of it out and it had like a fill valve or a drain valve on the back side of it. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll just keep that cracked a little bit. That way no algae or anything will grow. I'll keep it flowing. So I went down there and I sunk it in the, in the dirt and camped it all in and it looked awesome. Well, we got all this rain. I went down there to check it out and heck it was floating down over the hill. So that was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's another thing is, like, what we do isn't, as far as, like, uh, managing whitetails, nothing is quick. Like, Woody and I, another guy on uh, Whitetail Freaks, we were talking about this yesterday or the day before. Like, everything we do, we won't see any process or, you know, any, any changes for a year. Like, everything is a year-by-year-by-year by year by year basis. Like, you can't do something today and expect something different or a change tomorrow so it just have patience when it comes to managing your farms it's just a long process and like you said (laughs) cutting timber the first time you see it you're thinking oh my goodness but the long-term effect far outweighs that initial shell shock amen now cody i
2: see you uh started using a packer max recently how you liking that thing
3: let me tell you about that thing. I'm glad you brought that up. See, I needed a new call to packer for the longest time. Because the only thing I ever had was one of them old steel drums, you know, the smooth ones. Yeah, and, right. Oh, man, you talk, yeah, you talk about getting frustrated because the mud would cake on it. And then by the time I get to the end of the field, I'd go uh, try to scrape the mud off of it. And all the seed would be stuck to the mud. So it was a disaster. Well, then my buddy Tim, he bought that farm over in Ohio couple, three years ago, and the guy before him uh, just kind of abandoned it, just kind of sold it and left whatever was there there, and the Packer Max was there. And I thought, well, this thing looks this thing looks different. You know, it has them big grooves in it, and those grooves kind of turned me off. I'm thinking, I don't know if I like them. Well, we used it, and them grooves are worth at, man. <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, man, because I was kind of nervous of what it was going to do. Like I didn't want these big V's out there. But the, it does not do that. Like, the water retention those things create is unreal. Like, so I had to go out and get one. Immediately went out and got one. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, that Panther Max is the slickest thing. And the best part about it is I think it weighs – I hang it up in my barn. So it weighs yeah. less than 100 pounds, I think. Like, it doesn't weigh much at all. Like, the the drum doesn't weigh anything. The brackets, that's where your weight is that tells you how well it's built. So it's easy enough for me to drain the water out, toss it in my truck and drive out to Illinois and put my fall plots in out there. So, I mean, that was a game changer in my idea or in my mind. I mean, if when I, when Tim had that, one, we used it over there, I fell in love with it, but I wanted to see what else was out there. So like I did a Google search and I typed in the best call to Packer and that was the first thing that popped up. I thought, well, it's, It's what it is now. Like it's doin'. I've got to get it, so I set out and 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 picked one up. Man, that thing is slick. Plus,
1: it has the teeth, so you don't have to deal with that sticky mud anymore. It just cleans those grooves right
3: off. That's true. I forgot about that. Yeah, you have those teeth that fit right inside the grooves So if you pick up any mud, out she comes. yeah. Yeah, like I forgot about those. Yeah, that that's such a. Such a piece of equipment, man. I think everybody needs one of those, and they're priced right. You're not going to break the bank. And when I first started planting food plots back in '09, uh, QDMA had a forum on their website, and they don't have it anymore. But
1: oh yeah, when I bought
3: this farm, when I when I bought this farm, I put everything I had down on it. So like I had less in my savings account than what the mortgage payment was. So like I worked overtime. Like I worked like a dog. I and, bet. Uh, Yeah, it was rough back then, but it's you know it's one of those things like if you can't swim and someone chucks you into into a lake, you're gonna do one of two things: swim or drown. You know, that was kind of where I was. But every night before I went to bed, I would read the QDMA forums, and the one thing that stood out and still stands out to this day is you plant on a firm seed bed, and so I think a good cultipacker is one of the one of the main tools a man needs. In his arsenal for food plotting, because if you can get that ground tilled up, dressed up, however you work it, then you roll it, then you you plant your plots on top of it and roll it again. I mean, that's going to be night and day difference. So, I think a Packer Max, that's a that's a big time game changer.
2: Yeah, you're not going to hear us argue with that. You know, we've we've been talking about those for for many years, and Lincoln was our very first. Uh, sponsor of the podcast here and I just we, we don't support you know junk either we're not going to come on here and, and and try to try to you know tell our listeners to buy something if it's junk and I tell you what that thing has been through the ringer I beat the heck out of my stuff and it's awesome um yeah and you're you're definitely right about the firm seed bed. Brian and I were on those forums as well and once I started using a, a packer I was much better off than probably the three years before that where I didn't do anything. I'd I'd disc it up and throw a seat out there and and go you know go home or whatever. But yeah, it's a it's a game changer. And, and guys guys realize that guys who bought them they, they know it you know. So um Lincoln, yeah. Lincoln has a good product over there.
3: Yeah, yes, and I got to know Lincoln over the past few months, and he's as good as they come. You know, you're gonna get your customer service he's going to answer any question you have like i really enjoyed getting to know him but uh see they also come with a wheel kit where you can flip that thing upside down and transport all over the place i don't have that yet but like out in illinois i'll just i'll run that thing right down the road it's and tar road where my farm is at and that thing don't care no it (laughs) tracks right down the road behind me that is so well built man like it's a it's a heck of a piece
2: of equipment for sure. Yeah, that the, that wheel kit is the same bracket, so you have to pick one or the other that the his new crimper attachment goes on. So I just picked up the crimper attachment um, and the heavy duty frame like you have, and that thing is, full of water. That thing is very heavy in terms of crimping and and packing down seed. i um, way heavier than my standard unit, so I think uh, yeah, I think for the guy who you know, in our In our neck of the woods, if you will, or our demographic who wants to get out there and get a Packer for a reasonable price, that's a good way to go.
3: Yeah, I I agree with you. I was actually talking to a friend of mine about it. I shared a picture of the Packer Max on my uh, Instagram story, and a buddy of mine texted me and asked me if I had one. I said, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, he had been looking for a good call to Packer, so I think he's going to run out and get one because – it's just one of those things, man. Like for a few hundred bucks, I think it's like five hundred bucks or so. I mean, you're gonna have a heck of a heck of an improvement on your on your food plots.
2: Yep, and and I'll I'll shamelessly plug. We have a discount too for the podcast. So if you're a listener of the podcast, um, you can just scroll down to the show notes below this episode. You'll see a twenty five dollar discount. For any of Lincoln's stuff, it's uh, HPC25 on his website. Um, free money. You know, you might as well save a couple of bucks and buy a case, of, a case of lattes or something. So, <laughs> Everybody likes free money, man. Exactly. Can't argue with that. Now, Cody, we're, we're coming up on, on time here. I want to ask you um, what your favorite tree is. That's one of our signature questions here. And then I want you to go ahead and plug uh, – You know, your whitetail freaks team and and where we can find you and all that good stuff. Uh, After that, we'll wrap it up.
3: Sounds good, man. Well, as far as a favorite tree, well, I mean, I could go anywhere. A favorite tree I like to hunt out of or a favorite tree I like to hunt near, you know, but uh, I love, 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 love a huge, like, big red oak tree in the timber. I'm talking one with a lot of competition where it has to grow, a hundred feet tall before the branches start, you know, that's one of my favorite trees to look at. Just because, you know, the turkeys love it, the deer love it. It's just a such a good tree. But I also like like a good fruit tree, like a good pollinator crab apple tree. I think for twenty five bucks you got a lifelong food plot out of a tree like that, you know. Yeah, solid. So yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah, the crabs are definitely solid. Um I can attest to that. And and then uh Yes. So, appreciate you coming on and spending your time with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate you following the podcast and, and all you do well, for us. I love us it, and, man. And, uh, yeah, thank you. And and so we want to be able to, you know, continue to follow you. Where can we find you? Let's hear your Instagram and, and catch your episodes airing and etc.
3: Sounds good, man. Yeah, uh, obviously Facebook's Cody Jarrett. Uh, Instagram's Cody Jarrett. underscore Whitetail Freaks. But uh But, I mean, find, you can find – a lot of my personal stuff there, um, obviously follow the Whitetail Freaks Instagram account. You're going to catch all of my stuff, Donna Candies and Woody's, Tyler's, and the rest of the crews. Um, especially with guys like those, those guys up there, you're going to see a lot of the ag stuff. You know, they're all big-time farmers. Uh, you know, Tyler and Woody are agronomists. So, I mean, I learn a lot from them guys, you know, different weed control or what the heck's my dirt doing or what's this number mean on this soil sample. You know, I pick their brains, you know. Not everybody knows everything, so keep that in mind. So, if you guys need any questions, shoot them guys a shoot them guys a question or comment on some of our on our some of our stuff on the Freaks pages. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Cody. That's Cody
2: Jarrett underscore WhitetailFreaksTV on Instagram, and uh, obviously at WhitetailFreaksTV for for the main. Don and Candy page and, and all that good stuff. So, Absolutely. Dude, really appreciate you coming on. It was a great conversation. Um, good to hear from more guys like, like you and, and us who are, you know, doing it on their own dime down in West Virginia and then
1: oh, up yeah. in Illinois.
2: That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. So, yep. I just uh, yep. we appreciate it.
3: I appreciate you guys having me, man. Been a long, uh, been a fan of your guys' podcast for a long time now, and I look forward to all the new ones all the time. That's why. I listen to you guys on my trips out to uh, Illinois. Appreciate that. Absolutely, man. You're welcome, and thanks for for having me this morning.
2: Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal, we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plot, Realtree, United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.
1: Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to 10
0: p.m. Eastern
1: on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
0: I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.